AgriTalk is brought to you by Full Scale from Helena. Grow Strong returns this season with breakthrough foliar nutrition from Full Scale at Reproduction. And by Propane. Propane is the energy for everyone, especially farmers. Environmentally friendly propane can fuel most anything on the farm. See how at propane.com. The ag industry is trying to figure out options ahead of what could be an early December strike by rail workers. We'll get you up to speed on that. And we've got what you need to know about the census of ag. And hey, hunters, hey, let's talk about hunting down hunger. Live from 20 Tuesday morning via Farm Journal broadcast, this is AgriTalk. This morning, we begin with a conversation with Administrator Hubert Hamer from USDA NAS, then it's Ken Erickson from S&P Global Commodity Insights, and later Josh Wilson for Farmers and Hunters Feeding the Hungry. I'm handsome newsman Davis Michelson. Now, welcome the host of AgriTalk, Chip Flory. All right, Davis. Yeah, a little bit of fun with numbers. 11-22-22 is kind of cool. Right. Kind of cool. But 11-22-44 will be even cooler. Oh, well, yeah, that'll really be something. Oh, yeah, I cannot wait for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's like within my next 30 years. See, that's not a song we can sing, though. That song's not about us. What? Why, yeah. yes, it is. Yeah, it is. I'm I, proving it as we speak. Sheesh, I hope we get that for a bump today. How are you, buddy? So great. So great. <laughs> yeah? I'm, uh, yeah, super excited. You know, I'll be honest. We got a short week. Yeah. We, you and I have a lot to do, but oh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm losing it, buddy. <laughs> I don't, yeah. I'm not holding on by much. <laughs> yeah, the, here's the deal. Here's the deal. You got to jam five days into three right? if you want a short week. That's yes. the trick here. And I, I can't keep any of it straight. That's the I sad know. thing. It's really difficult for you, isn't it? It is. <laughs> I got enough bouncing around up there anyway, you know? <laughs> I know it. I know it. <laughs> oh, man. Well, hey, speaking of stuff bouncing around up there, data and data on the heartland and data on agriculture and farming is very important uh, in, when when uh, the federal government is figuring out you know, where support should go, how it should be delivered, and, and so on. And the Census of Ag pays, plays a huge role in that, and it starts today. Mm-hmm. And that is conducted by NAS, uh, the National Ag Statistics Service. And we've got Hubert Hamer on today to talk about the Census of Agriculture and, and a way uh-huh. for farmers to get around. Is that saying it right? An alternative, an alternative to the census of ag for farmers. Okay. Well, that makes sense to me. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. So we've got the details on that. Uh, Ken Erickson is going to be in on what, with what he knows about the potential for a rail strike. And then something that I've been talking about for quite some time, and Mm -hmm. we've talked about it on AgriTalk before, but it has been years since we've done it. Um, Farmers and Hunters Feeding the Hungry, FHFH. It's a really cool program, and they've got a new campaign that is out there this year. Cool. That uh, we're going to get the details on. Great. All right, buddy. Let's get to the news. What do you got? 
Well, let's begin with highlights from USDA's crop progress and condition update for the weekend of November 20. Corn, 96% harvested. That's ahead of the 90% average. Cotton, 79% harvested, uh, ahead of the 71% average. Winter wheat is 87% emerged, 32% good to excellent compares to 32% last week. Um, let's talk winter wheat, but also a notable omission, soybeans. Apparently uh, nothing to see on the soybeans. All done. That's all she wrote? All done. All, all done right. for the year. We'll all have right. to wait until probably April before we start getting any uh, updates on crop conditions, crop progress on soybeans. 32% good to excellent. It was unchanged from a year ago on the winter wheat crop condition mm-hmm. index, mm-hmm. but the HRW condition index declined. On the Pro Farmer CCI crop condition index, yeah, 70 points, 70 points below the Ooh. average on the condition of this HRW crop. It is in terrible shape. Well, Chip, Federal Reserve officials, after an aggressive path of rate increases this year, are beginning to take a closer look at how the economy is reacting to more restrictive monetary policy. The Fed has raised rates by three-quarters of a percentage point at each of the last four meetings in an attempt to cool inflation. On Monday, San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly pointed to the risks that officials raise interest rates too high which could cause unnecessary damage to the economy, saying, so far, higher rates have shown up in financial markets in the form of higher mortgage rates and tighter financial conditions, but they have yet to fully percolate down to the real economy. All right, there we go. You know, we talk about job boning and and getting consumers to stop, you know, scaring them to stop mm-hmm. spending and slow the economy down. Maybe this is the first job boning to say, all right, you know what, maybe we've gone far enough. Well, according to the Wall Street Journal, Saudi Arabia and other OPEC oil producers are discussing boosting oil output, a move that could lower prices and help heal a rift with the Biden administration amid new attempts to blunt Russia's oil industry. Delegates are considering raising output by up to 500,000 barrels per day. The move could come the day before the European Union is set to impose an embargo on Russian oil. Saudi Arabia has already come out and said, listen, you know, the production cuts that we talked about earlier through the end of the year, those are still in place and are going to remain in place through the end of the year. So today we've got crude oil futures a buck and a half higher back, well above 80 bucks a barrel in the nearby contracts. Well, Chip, one of the two largest railroad unions said Monday it had rejected a new labor deal brokered by the White House, inching closer to a strike that could disrupt supply chains in December. By law, Congress can intervene to impose an agreement if the two sides remain deadlocked. If no agreement is reached, the union could strike December 9. However, the Brotherhood of Railroad Signalmen is on a schedule opening the way for a strike December 5th. Eight of the industry's unions have ratified the contract, but if one group strikes, others say they will not cross picket lines. Yeah, we'll get the latest from Ken coming up here in just a little bit. The World Health Organization warns that Ukraine faces a devastating energy crisis this winter that will severely test the country's health service, which lacks fuel, water, and electricity. Some 10 million people, or one quarter of the population, do not have access to power as Russian strikes have halved the country's generating capacity. It's not just Ukraine. I don't know Mm -hmm. why they just are focused. You know, I get the reason for the focus on Ukraine. I, I understand that. But it's all across Europe. Davis, you and I have been talking about this for four or five months, Mm -hmm. that this winter is going to be treacherous across Europe. And I don't see anything to change my mind. 
Well, Chip, Beijing has shut parks, malls, and museums while more Chinese cities resume mass testing for COVID-19. Some analysts are saying 20% of China's economy is being negatively impacted by the COVID lockdowns. Analysts are cutting forecasts for China's year-end oil demand in response. And the Department of Energy awarded credits valued up to $1.1 billion to help keep California's only operating nuclear energy facility open. The move came after data showed closing the plant prematurely would inhibit the state's ability to reach new clean energy goals and increase the risk of blackouts during times of high demand. Fancy that. Chip. They needed to study the data to figure out that closing a nuclear energy facility would permanently inhibit the state's ability to supply clean energy. And it took $1.1 billion to incentivize them to keep it open. It's amazing to me. Absolutely amazing. All right. We're going to hear from Hubert Hamer at NAS next here on Agritalk. Agritalk is brought to you by Rumensen. Rumensen's quality, consistency, and efficiency make it the right choice for your cattle operation. Rumensen, trusted by generations. From powering irrigation engines to warming buildings, propane has always been a part of American farm life. Now, you can be a part of propane's future and save money at the same time. The Propane Farm Incentive Program is a research initiative that provides farmers up to $5,000 towards the purchase of new propane-powered equipment. In exchange, participants share performance data to make tomorrow's ag operations more cost-effective, more efficient, and more environmentally friendly with propane. Getting started is simple. Visit propane.com slash farm incentive to see if you're eligible. To produce higher yields and greater value at harvest, timing is everything. Full Scale from Helena helps soybeans reach their full potential with breakthrough foliar nutrition and reproduction. Full Scale delivers beneficial plant extracts and micronutrients with the added efficiency of ENC formulation technology. It gives your soybeans every opportunity to grow strong returns this season. Contact your local ag retailer or Helena representative to learn more about Full Scale. Always read and follow label instructions and check registration status before use. AgriTalk is brought to you by the NRCS Conservation Stewardship Program, which cost shares more than 150 practices on farms and ranches. Visit your local service center or farmers.gov today. Welcome back to AgriTalk. I'm your host, Chip Flory. Glad that you are with us on this Tuesday. Uh, Davis Michelson is along as well. Davis? It is a Tuesday. Yeah. Yes. I'm here. Absolutely. <laughs> it is a Tuesday. And it is census time. Hubert Hamer is the administrator of USDA's National Ag Statistics Service, or NAS. They roll out the census of ag. And Administrator Hamer, welcome back to AgriTalk. It's good to talk with you again. Thank you, gentlemen. It's glad to be here with you. All right. Well, today is the day. The, uh, the census hits the mail today, right? Absolutely, that's correct. We're sending an invitation to everyone to respond online. Okay. Yes, very important there. Now, we'll get to that in in just a moment, but the census is taken every five years, correct? That's correct. Years ending in two and seven. Okay. Uh, Who is included? Who's included in the census? Everyone that is involved in agriculture uh, that produces 
for sales of $1,000 worth of ag products. We have a very low bar for inclusion, so we want to include everyone in the process. Yeah, that bar is set awfully low. Some people think that that gives us a false reading of of what's going on in ag, but there are questions included in the census that help us figure out the trends that are happening in commercial agriculture versus some of the smaller farms that are out there, right? You're absolutely correct. Uh, We want to count everyone regardless of your size and location. And then we have economic breakdowns of the different sizes of operations. So we can get to all of that information by size group when we need to. Okay. So the data, how is the data used? What is it used for? Okay. Basically, when you think about the census, it measures the structure of U.S. agriculture, how much land is involved, how many producers, the value of sales, demographic characteristics. These data are to measure uh, for this use for decision makers, uh, to measure the the results of disasters, weather conditions, the economic issues and conditions affecting producers. So it's very, very broad and very comprehensive uh, in the ways that it can be used. Right. And, and then the, the data determines the level of uh, federal help that is given in certain rural areas, doesn't it? Absolutely. Again, as I mentioned, if you have a disaster in a particular area, they're looking at these data. If SF, FSA uses these data to help administer their programs, uh, the uh, uh, RMA uses this information. So it's used all across the department to administer programs and to provide help and support for producers on the ground. Okay. What kind of questions are included in the census? And, and uh, it, it's 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 something that takes a little bit of a time commitment to get it done, but, boy, these questions are critical in helping the federal government do what they're supposed to do going forward. Uh, you're, you're absolutely correct. There is a lot of information, again, the profile of the, of the uh, operator, the amount of land in production, the crops, the livestock that are involved, et cetera. But if you go online, that's a efficient way to get through the instrument very quickly because you have skip techniques. If you don't have a particular area of agriculture, you're going to skip that section and only complete the ones that are applicable to your operation. Okay. Uh, you've mentioned it a couple of times. There are there are a lot of reasons to do this, to, to fill out the census digitally uh, at agcounts.usda.gov is where you can go to find the census, correct? That's correct. And you're right. It's the fastest, most efficient way, uh, less errors that way. You don't have transcription errors. So it is the way to go if you have access. And we understand yeah. some producers don't, so they'll be able to uh, respond by mail. Right. So you've got the mail response possibility, um, it, and there's even a telephone potential. But, boy, that telephone, we're, you, you're going to give producers every opportunity to respond before we get to the telephone response because that isn't planned until for for another two years, Right. Well, the telephone, uh, we're, we're planning to wrap up data collection early next year. Uh, the okay. deadline currently is February of, of, uh, of, uh, of uh, next year. 
but uh, we probably will extend that a bit to make sure we take advantage of uh, to try to get all of the uh, the responses that we can get. And we do have a toll-free line for individuals to call in if they have okay. questions about uh, certain aspects of the form. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Very good. Is there anything new in the census that that those that have filled it out in the past may catch them by surprise or something? Well, we always uh, include uh, some new items, uh, areas that, uh, you know, are maybe potentially on the rise. We'll have some additional questions on precision agriculture, information on hemp production, hair sheep, and updates to the Internet access questions. We want to know how you get online, you know, what type of connectivity you have. Uh, in addition to that, the new portal, again, makes it easier uh, for the producer. Uh, we're going to have some previously reported data if they're potentially to make it a little bit easier for them to get through the questionnaire a little bit quicker. Good, good, good. Okay. Um, how is this different than the Agricultural Resource Management Survey? Uh, the Agricultural Resource Management Study is a a, con a project that we do in conjunction with the Economic Research Service, uh, we select a sample of producers every year. And that basically measures the economic health of U.S. Uh, agriculture. You'll see reports like the farm income generated based on that and the farm production expenditures survey that NAS releases in July is based on that annual survey. So it's a smaller survey, but what's important about that, if you complete uh, the ARM survey, the Agricultural Resource Management Survey, you don't have to complete the Census of Agriculture. So you get a you you get a big benefit from doing that. Okay. So this ARM survey, who uses the primarily uses the data that's collected there? Uh, again, uh, the Economic Research Service puts out a farm income estimate based on that. Uh, your land grant colleges and universities and researchers use that information. Policymakers use a lot of that information uh, as they have to make some of the tough policy yep. decisions affecting agriculture. Yeah, that's that's what I thought. With the farm bill negotiations coming up uh, in 2023, you know, it's that kind of information that's going to be really critical to the to the House and the Senate Ag committees as they're putting together and, and negotiating that farm bill because. They they rely on that information. There is there is no question about it. Um, anything special that's being asked in 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 the agricultural resource management survey? Well, we're focusing each year. We focus on different uh, commodities. This year, we're focusing more uh, for produ production practices for wheat and potato producers, and then collecting uh, cost and return data for wheat producers also. So in addition to general agriculture, those are some areas that we're going to get some special information this year. We rotate those commodities. And isn't this survey where we find out just how many acres are devoted to organic production, to non-GMO production, so on and so forth? Well, generally, uh, some of that will come be an offshoot of the census of agriculture. We use okay. the census as a sampling frame for these other emerging areas, as you've mentioned, and then we'll go back and do a special study and focus specific, specifically on those areas. Right. Okay. Very good. Very good. So it is available starting today. Go ahead and get out there and to 
agcounts.usda.gov. That's where you go to uh, uh, respond online. That obviously is what we prefer. Uh, is there incentives to complete the census of agriculture? Well, obviously, uh, it's, it's providing data that's helpful to the producer organizations, the farm bureaus, uh, and the producers themselves to make decisions. Uh, so it's very important if they don't jump online and do it immediately in December, we're going to mail questionnaires out to every producer. So you'll get a mail questionnaire at home if, uh, if we don't hear from you very, very quickly. Yeah. And again, if you are generating basically any kind of revenue out there, $1,000 or more of agricultural product during the census year, uh, you are going to be receiving an invitation to respond to the Census of Agriculture. Administrator Hamer, thank you so much for making time for us this morning. We really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. And I just want to take a plug to say thank you to all of the farmers and ranchers out there for their great support. Uh, We can't do it without their strong support. So thanks to all the farmers and ranchers. Excellent. Happy Thanksgiving to you, sir. Thank you all. Appreciate it. All right. That is Hubert Hamer, Administrator of USDA's NAS. We'll be back with more AgriTalk in a moment. To produce higher yields and greater value at harvest, timing is everything. Full Scale from Helena helps soybeans reach their full potential with breakthrough foliar nutrition and reproduction. Full Scale delivers beneficial plant extracts and micronutrients with the added efficiency of ENC formulation technology. It gives your soybeans every opportunity to grow strong returns this season. Contact your local ag retailer or Helena representative to learn more about Full Scale. Always read and follow label instructions and check registration status before use. From powering irrigation engines to warming buildings, propane has always been a part of American farm life. Now you can be a part of propane's future and save money at the same time. The Propane Farm Incentive Program is a research initiative that provides farmers up to $5,000 towards the purchase of new propane-powered equipment. In exchange, participants share performance data to make tomorrow's ag operations more cost-effective, more efficient, and more environmentally friendly with propane. Getting started is simple. Visit propane.com slash farm incentive to see if you're eligible. Time for Markets Now with the experts from ProFarmer. And joining us now, our own Chip Flory, Pro Farmer yes. veteran. Uh, Chip, pressure continues in the corn, in the beans, yeah. and in the wheat. Yeah, a little bit of pressure here this morning. Not a whole lot, though. When you you think about typical kind of holiday trade, I think this is what we start to imagine as we look at the the narrowing of the daily trading ranges and and uh, the unwillingness to move too far from unchanged. I mean, look at the D's corn contract today. We've got a range of 658 up to 663. So a nickel range in D's corn today. Just really not making a commitment to go one way or the other. That's probably going to continue right um, right through tomorrow's close, Davis. And, and I wouldn't expect much of a commitment. Now, these low-volume types of days, as, as we talked about yesterday afternoon, uh, with Darren Fry from Water Street Solutions, low volume days can turn into some big movement on the prices. So we need to be aware of that. I guess the feature in the in the grain markets would be what's happening in crude oil. We've got some strength in crude oil. It's providing some support for the soybean oil market this morning. 
Well, and I was about to point out the fat cattle are following corn lore, but about 30 seconds ago, it popped a nickel in the Dees. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and Dees cattle just trading a, a slightly higher this morning. A little bit of pressure on the live cattle, a little bit of pressure on feeder cattle, mixed trade in the feeder cattle market. Lean hog market trying to build on yesterday's gain, that February contract back above 90 bucks. We've got the October highs within range for the February lean hog market right now, which, hey, the chart watchers just might go ahead and take a shot at that before the end of the day. That's Chip Florian for Brian Grady on Markets Now. Opinions expressed on Agritalk do not necessarily reflect the views of Farm Journal Broadcasting, affiliate stations, or sponsors. You're listening to Agritalk, where the conversation begins. Join us at 855-4-TALK-AG. We're not beginning the conversation. We're continuing the conversation on this topic, and we're talking about the rail situation and whether or not we're going to see a strike by the rail workers' unions in the early days of December. Davis, we've been covering this issue now for months and uh, uh, trying to figure out exactly what the outcome is going to be. And and I I think it's still up in the air uh, exactly where we're going to end up here. So let's get the latest. Right now, Ken Erickson, Senior VP of Energy and Transportation and Policy at S&P Global Commodity Insights. Ken, it's good to talk with you again. How are you, buddy? Good. Uh, good morning, Chip. Good to be on with you all today of all weeks with Thanksgiving, having to talk about yeah. labor unions. Yeah. <laughs> Go figure, huh? Here we are. But that's a situation. You know, that's that's where we're at right now. And and this was a September issue that was pushed off to December. Uh, and here we are. It, it's still an issue. And what's the status? Yeah. So we are sitting here with the unions who have now come back with all the results of their uh labor unions themselves with the votes and four of the unions have not ratified the contract and there's eight that have and but those four are very very important because uh between now and uh december 5th you've got a situation where the clock ticks over to december 5th and you could be in a strike situation then there's a four-day cooling period and then december 9th you could have a strike and with these unions they're and the railroads, they're negotiating still to try to get this completed with all of them on some of the issues. But uh, they're very much trying to get something completed. But, uh, Chip, this is uh, a long ways to go. We get the holidays and there's a lot at stake in the economy when you're looking at over two billion dollars in economic activity on every single day that's involved here. Uh, it's very important here. And so uh, now it's just waiting to see how these things go forward in the cooling uh, in this period before December uh, 9th, quite frankly. Yeah. Okay. The, every time that we see a report on this, we see that it comes. It's coming down to um, sick days, and you know, I see some of the general media coverage on it. And they say, "Well, the rail workers don't get any sick days." Uh, what is the status on that? Is that the big holdup? That appears to be the big holdup, and it's not that they don't get sick days; they do get personal right. days. Uh, and so those are still part of the contract. What they're trying to say is, look, when we need to go to a doctor appointment or we need to do something in a hurry, it's hard to do. Well, that's part of the job. And when you're miles away or days away from someplace because of the job you're in, it is challenging. But that's the nature of the business that you're in. So they're they're trying to use it perhaps as a fork. But, you know, they've already ratified many parts of the what was negotiated back in September and what the presidential uh, board has put forward. 
uh, review board uh, from Biden administration, uh, there's still the unions are still not wanting to fully accept those these four. And the, the fear is that if you get one union strike, they all strike. They will honor the, yeah. the strike and not go over the picket line. So the, the whole thing with the uh, sick days is still st- a sticking point. But most of the unions have already said, look, it's a good contract. Let's move forward here. Yeah. Yeah. And But it's important to remember what you just said. It's, it is it is not a majority rules situation. It's if one of the unions, even if it's the smallest union, decides that it is going to strike, then all rail workers are striking, correct? That's the word that we're hearing is that all railroads, it's on, uh, the labor unions would honor the strike, even of the smallest one. And then quite frankly, if that's the case, you have, need to extend that to other unions across the country, whether it's the International Longshore Warehouse Union on the U.S. West Coast, the dock workers, to the International Longshore Association across the center Gulf and East Coast who would not work train yards or ships, perhaps, depends how they can extend those rules. And the Teamsters and other unions in the country that would probably want to honor these uh, 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 strikes and not go over the picket lines. Right, right. That That's why, and I've seen the $2 billion per day number as far as what a rail strike would cost. I've seen that. But in reality, uh, it, it's probably much bigger than that. I agree. The magnitude is huge. And when yeah. you think about it for for farmers, one, one in four bushels of grain and soybeans move by rail to final market position. Right. And it's even more so to domestic uh, that you've got a lot that's at stake here for the industry. And uh, right now, our exports have really suffered because what's going on in the river yeah. situation and the rail, they're pumping as fast as they can. But, you know, when for farmers, when you start thinking about what it means to get grain to market, especially from the to the Pacific Northwest, where most of the grain arrives by rail, it's a seven day round trip for that grain to get loaded on a train, get to the West Coast and come back. We start doing the arithmetic. We're not far away from people not wanting to load trains for fear of them being held up and not right. knowing what the reality is. Exactly. Exactly, Ken. Because back in September, before the White House intervened, the buildup to the potential strike saw companies, they, they were adjusting production. They were adjusting their shipping schedules, especially countries that handle what's described as hazardous material, things like ethanol. I, the the ethanol plants have to start planning for this now. They do. There is not enough truck drivers in the in the country, let alone trucks, to be able to move this. And then that starts hitting into the energy sector really fast. And they won't be loading trains when they come in there because the risk is just too great to have them stranded someplace. Yes, there'll be provisions to get those moved, uh, and the management will take over some of the trains. It's not like it's going to shut down if there is a in fact a strike. Uh, management will jump into the locomotives. They've been trained. There's not enough management to go around for 125,000 right. labor jobs. Right. Okay. So with all this in mind, what are the odds that we're going to see a strike in early December? Well, there's, it could certainly be a strike. And we saw this in 1992. Uh, the, the labor unions did go on strike or they honored it. And what happened, however, was that Congress came to this point and said, look, uh, this is too important for us. They took 17 hours to put together the legislation, uh, discuss it, debate it, pass the legislation, says go back to work. So we've got precedents in 1992 of this happening. And Congress is watching closely. They've got probably legislation ready to go from all the different organizations. And now it's just a matter of just seeing uh, when this they need to trigger that and take the time to do it. But the damage will be done. Yeah. 
the damage is being done now because right. people are starting or alternative modes to get to market. And there's going to be signals says don't move until we get some uh, conclusion on this. And in 1992, Ken, the case of one upsmanship that we see in Congress today really didn't. It, it happened, but not to the degree that we're seeing now. Somebody is going to see this as an opportunity to put the spotlight squarely on themselves in Congress and throw a wrench into the works on all of this, Ken. That, that's how this Congress works. Yeah, that, it certainly is about uh, opportunistic uh, campaigning, I guess, in, in the process. Yeah. The reality is we've got a great a, a amount of uh, the economy at play here, whether it's in the fertilizer, the chemicals, the energy, <laughs> the ethanol we've already mentioned, the intermodal. Look, the, the, you know, you think about railroad, they're moving the building blocks for our economy, the necessities of daily life. And, quite, and if you think about it, the gifts of the Christmas season are needing to still be moved into market position. And uh, 30% of the U.S. economy is moved by rails by volume. So there is a lot at play here. And when it gets stuck, you, you just reverberate. You just do not all of a sudden turn it off and turn it back on. It takes longer to get the t machine back up to operation than it does to shut it down. And that that's going to be the problem. We got to watch how people respond to this and diverting cargo and doing alternative planning to make this work. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you to talk to the consumers that are listening and explain why it's important to them. And I think you just did. Uh, the 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 product that isn't moving on the Mississippi right now needs to move by rail, and we we've, we've basically already doubled down on the rail. And if they take that away, I what are the options, Ken? I, is is uh, it just truck? It, yeah, truck becomes the final option in this. And again, we know for those long haul moves, there's not enough truck drivers. There's not enough trucks. Uh, truck moves the majority of our economy, especially the last mile, first mile, the old expression yep. goes. But it's going to be challenged. Things will just get backed up. You get the ships on the West Coast. And again, if you've got a labor strike, uh, what does the uh, labor unions on the coasts do at the ports and terminals? Uh, and you get uh, equipment backed up again. It could be a, if it's a 17 hour event, it's still a 17 hour event. And that means things across the entire economy just come to a standstill. People waiting for things to move. And then you get uh, a break in there. The good thing, there's a bit of a resiliency when you got truck, but it doesn't happen overnight. And for the building blocks, of the economy, the bulk commodities that uh, we work with are the farmers, the ag industry, agribusinesses, the grains, the fertilizers, the chemicals, the nutrients. It's going to be challenging to see what is going to transpire. Once the contracts are done, they'll go to work. But yep. until we get there, there's just too much uncertainty. And, and again, the amount of intermodal traffic that comes in that carries all the goods all the computer chips, all the computers, all the Christmas toys that come into the country, those could be, you know, delayed. And, and those things yep. continue to be uptown. Look, airline, the, the air cargo side, we got a fly-by-night company in Memphis, FedEx. They can't, yep. would not be able to keep up with it. As it is, they're seeing some slowdowns, but this could be something that's going to be very problematic. Okay. So what I'm hearing from you is that some of the disruptions are already starting to happen because of the hazardous materials. And we're talking primarily on the ethanol side of things right now there don't be surprised if there is a strike, but if there is a strike expected to be very short term and the Congress to step in and, and resolve it. Is that, that the bottom line? That's the bottom line. And, okay. and meanwhile, people are looking for alternative uh, options for movement of cargoes, diversions or slowing down production. Meanwhile, 
don't forget you got the West Coast labor uh, situation, yeah. the International Offshore Warehouse Union still negotiating their contract. They're watching this closely and maybe looking for you know opportunities to leverage. And we've already seen cargo diversion from that as it is. So there, there's a lot more that we got to keep peeling this onion back as we go forward here. When is, when is the deadline on the dock workers? That one expired July 1, and there's been no discussion of a deadline where they're going to be trying to have a, a final contract. Wow. Ken, thank you so much for your time today, buddy. We really appreciate it. Happy Thanksgiving to you. We'll talk with you again soon. Thanks. Happy Thanksgiving to you and to everyone else. All right. That's Ken Erickson, S&P Global Commodity Insights. We'll be back with more in a moment. From powering irrigation engines to warming buildings, propane has always been a part of American farm life. Now you can be a part of propane's future and save money at the same time. The Propane Farm Incentive Program is a research initiative that provides farmers up to $5,000 towards the purchase of new propane-powered equipment. In exchange, participants share performance data to make tomorrow's ag operations more cost-effective, more efficient, and more environmentally friendly with propane. Getting started is simple. Visit propane.com slash farm incentive to see if you're eligible. To produce higher yields and greater value at harvest, timing is everything. Full Scale from Helena helps soybeans reach their full potential with breakthrough foliar nutrition and reproduction. Full Scale delivers beneficial plant extracts and micronutrients with the added efficiency of ENC formulation technology. It gives your soybeans every opportunity to grow strong returns this season. Contact your local ag retailer or Helena representative to learn more about Full Scale. Always read and follow label instructions and check registration status before use. On your favorite radio station or your preferred digital device, AgriTalk is live every weekday. That's too much buildup. i got to come in now. I just can't wait around. There it was. Welcome back to AgriTalk, everybody. Your pal Davis Michelson here. Chip Flory, of course, joins. Yep. Uh, Chip, before we move on, let's, uh, let's get to today's Yields in the Fields. Yields in the Fields on AgriTalk is brought to you by MicroEssentials from Mosaic, the science of more. Discover our proven products. Text YIELDS to 31313. We take you now to the mean streets of south-central Iowa, Wayne County, where a farmer says, quote, My yields were all over the place. Corn on corn was very disappointing and below a pH. Soybeans were average. Yields depended on rain amounts and timing. Yields in the Fields is brought to you by Micro Essentials from Mosaic. Chip. All right, Davis. Thank you very much. Hey, let's learn about an organization that I've been following for quite some time. Uh, Get a little more info out to all the listeners. Farmers and Hunters Feeding the Hungry. Josh Wilson is the executive director there at FHFH. He joins us right now. Josh, welcome to AgriTalk. How are you? I am doing fine, thanks. How are you? We're doing real fine, real fine. So give us some history about farmers and hunters feeding the hungry and how many meals. This is such an impressive number. You Well, number one, you're 25 years old now, right, Josh? Yep, that's right. This is our 25th anniversary year. Started back in 1997 here in Maryland and then expanded from there. Uh, and I was kind of surprised myself to learn that over those years, uh, at one time or another, we've had activity, I believe, in about 30 different states. Uh, now, right now, we're in about 15 states. 
but it's just exciting that we've made it this far and been able to help so many hunters and farmers donate nutritious meat to feed the hungry of their communities. Well, and Josh, the number of meals that you have contributed to or the program has contributed to is staggering. Sure. Yeah. Yep. So we're, we're right up about 23 uh, million meal servings. We go by quarter pound servings. So yeah, over those 25 years, you know, that's, that's close to a million servings average per year. And in reality, you know, we're really just one organization. Uh, There are about 35 other organizations that do similar work. Most of them are state organizations, either run by like a DNR or the food bank network in that state. Uh, sometimes a wildlife uh, federation in the state. And so all of these great organizations together do this work uh, just like we do. And together, uh, at one point anyway, at least a few years ago, I believe uh, one of the other organizations, it might have been the National Shooting Sports Foundation, I believe, tried to pull together some aggregate numbers to see how much the hunters are donating in a given year. And at that point, they came up with a figure of 10 million meal servings per year. Uh, donated by hunters uh, from, you know, from the mountains, from the farmlands all across our country. That is good work, hunters. That is good work. And uh, this is something that I've participated in in the past. And and one of the issues that a lot uh, that, that some hunters say that they're running into is the the processors, the processors that are participating in some of these programs, Josh. I It's tough for them to do because they're busy anyway, but there are still processors that are willing to participate in these programs, right? Right, right. Yep. And that has been an issue, uh, particularly the past couple of years when we were dealing with the COVID pandemic. Uh, We heard of a number of butchers that were so busy, uh, booked up doing livestock that they had to back off on the deer processing. Uh, So I think some of that is easing a little bit now as we put the pandemic hopefully in the rearview mirror yeah. uh, certainly there's a, an issue though with uh, processors getting older and finding it difficult to pass the business along to somebody who wants to do that kind of work so yeah. but yes there are still plenty of locations uh, available both in our program and in the other organizations as well okay talk to me about the hunt down hunger campaign that you've got underway right now Sure. Well, really, that's just a, an attempt to, to talk to people about what we were just discussing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that there's all these hunters that are donating all of these meal servings of meat to people all across the country. Uh, but yet there are still many hunters that don't realize they have the opportunity to donate. And a lot of people in the public that have no idea that the hunters are doing this good work. So we figured one of the things we could do is uh, really on an annual basis, try to draw more attention to this, try to increase the, the awareness among the hunters so that the participation will go up. The number of deer donated will increase the number of meal servings to the food banks will increase. uh, And then in turn also get this in front of more people in the general public so that the support for these great organizations uh, can also be enhanced in terms of volunteers and finances and so forth. Right. How difficult is it for a hunter to participate in a program like like you've got? Uh, It's generally not hard at all if they can locate a participating butcher shop in their area. 
so for instance, in our case, uh, our main website is at feedingthehungry.org. And when you go to that site, we've got a button at the top for uh, giving meat, and that'll take them right to a page that has a uh, searchable list and map of the whole country to find participating butchers that work with our program. We have also added uh, these 30 some other organizations as locations in the states that they work in. Uh, so if someone doesn't see one of our butchers, they could click on one of the markers for the other organization and it will take you to that organization's name and a website link that they can jump over and find a butcher list on their site. So right. once a person finds that butcher, then, then it should be relatively simple. They just need to take a legally harvested deer uh, that's been field dressed and checked in to that butcher location, tell them they'd like to donate it to the, the venison donation yep. program. And uh, that should be it. In most cases, yeah. there's probably like a log sheet. You put down your tag number and sign off that you donated on that date. Uh, but from that point, most of these programs will take care of it uh, from there in terms of paying the processing bill and making sure that the meat gets to the food bank. Exactly. Exactly. That's the important thing for hunters to remember out there. And you know, landowners, we've talked about depredation tags in the state of Iowa and how those can be used to manage the, the herd on your farm. Get the hunters that are on your ground excited about the depredation program and donate that meat to a group like Farmers and Hunters Feeding the Hungry. Just go to feedingthehungry.org for more information on it. Those two programs can work really, really well together. Josh, thank you for what you do. Good luck to you and keep up the good work, buddy. Yep, absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity to share. You bet. That's Josh Wilson, Executive Director, Farmers and Hunters Feeding the Hungry. Come back this afternoon. 